Awakened Reality Podcast, JFK Assassination. And it's easy to drink, and it's a good thirst quencher. Yeah, you know. So, so we're in good hands. Where are we now, my friends? So uh, we're now going to talk about big oil, mm-hmm. specifically Texas oil. Texas oil. Because this comes into play, as you will find out. Let's, how important is oil in in, uh, in the United States? How important is oil? Yeah. I'd say oil pretty much makes the United States run. You know, I heard it, this is a little bit going far afield. But I heard something um, about, you know, the United States, we always kind of pride ourselves on our unstoppable economy, right? And it's true, we have the world's largest economy. But I heard this interesting, um, and I wish I knew who had said it. It might have actually been Carter, of all people, who had, um, who had kind of stated this. But somebody at one point said, here's the thing about the, Uni- the United States economy. Initially, and we're talking kind of colonial days and then you know just after the revolution initially the united states economy was essentially high on free wood free limb free timber because we had all of these trees over the whole country something that is something we don't usually think about but great britain they didn't have that yeah we were like the only country maybe there were some other countries but we were one of the only countries that essentially had all of the wood that we needed and we sold tons of wood we used tons of wood we chopped it down we made houses we burned it we did you know so essentially our economy in many ways was driven by kind of this free timber and then after that our economy was high on slavery free free labor you know right up until 1860 you know we essentially had free labor and then with with um with sharecropping and everything after that you could still say that we have a different form of slavery yeah a different form of slavery so the economy was drunk on you know free or underpaid labor at that time and then and i really think this was carter he he said after that our economy was drunk on cheap oil and what he means by that is is that you know, you remember this. You're, you're, you know, you're my age, a few years older. Yep. When I was young, when I first started driving, and I would fill up the car, it cost ninety nine cents a gallon. <laughs> you remember those days? Yes, right? I do. And so, you know, we were paying ninety nine cents a gallon. Do you know what they were paying in Europe at that time? Mm. Like four bucks a gallon. Jesus you know? Christ. And so. What drives, what drove the economy in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s? Mm. Cheap oil. Yeah. The U.S. access to cheap oil is what drove our economy, what, what really enabled us, other than just the size of our country. Yeah. And I'm not saying this is in the whole story, because I do think that, that the United States kind of is, is a very entrepreneurial country. I think we have we have tons of amazing inventors, and I think so. I think there's kind of an element of the American spirit that's at play as well. Of course, you have to minus out the the inventors who come up with things like free energy and cure to cancer <laughs> and, and 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 you know things like that. So where we wouldn't even need oil, mm-hmm. that you know have their patents bought out mm-hmm. or just quashed. Yeah, but my point is is yeah. that essentially the United States from its very inception. Mm-hmm has had something kind of behind its economy, kind of driving it, that was free. Free timber, free labor via slavery, free labor or cheap labor via sharecropping and via, you know, just the the working, Mm -hmm. you know, the the plight of the the working man back in the 1870s through prior. And even now. Yeah, and even now. (laughs) Yeah, certainly even now. But then in in the, the century before this one, we had cheap oil. Mm-hmm. And you can't overstate the power of cheap oil, of artificially cheap oil, to an economy. And so how important 
is oil, is cheap oil to the United States, I would say maybe as important as anything else. Yep. And that's may not be hyperbole. Yep. No, you're right. Sorry, that was an harangue. I don't no, know. No, I, 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 I totally get it. I mean, it, but oil to me, you know, is, is something that I believe has been so far surpassed by alternate means. Well, it could that, be surpassed, that we never, but we haven't moved past it. Right, that we've never allowed to come out. Mm-hmm, yep. You know, so yep. because of all the money that would be lost by the people that depend on no oh, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> Iran, right. oh, but, you know, and, and and all of that. Because if you get rid of that, oh my God, what would happen then? Yeah, you know. So yeah, oil's important. Unfortunately, yep. it's really important. Okay, so let's talk about oil in Texas. So the first significant discovery of oil in Texas took place in 1894. And, uh, but it really picked up kind of after the turn of the century, there were additional um, discoveries of oil. And uh, some Texans became extremely wealthy from, uh, well, obviously, I mean, people know this, um, but some Texans became extremely wealthy from these discoveries, um, including, and this is very early on, um, partners Sid Richardson and Clint Murchison. Hmm. So we're talking about, you know, 1810s, 1920s. Clint Murchison. Yep. It's an interesting name. It is. Some interesting facts about these two guys. And these were, again, two of the biggest players in Texan oil from the very get-go. So (laughs) some facts about them. They were close supporters, both of Lyndon Johnson. Ding! And J. Edgar Hoover. Ding! And many people actually say that they exerted significant influence over Jane. Ding! <laughs> so, oh boy! As time went on, they had significant ties in the form of relationships with those in the intelligence community. And these are people. I might have stated the dates too early. I mean, these were people who were still mm-hmm. very powerful and active in in the 1960s. So maybe it was more like 20s and 30s where they Well, hey, hey Steve, is this a new concept? Um, you know, big oil money uh, influencing, you know, politi- politicians? Well, maybe it was new back then. Yeah. It's not new now. Okay. So uh, they jointly owned the Del Chara Hotel in La Jolla, California. La Jolla. La Jolla. La Jolla. Oh, I got to tell you, what La a great Jolla. place. What a great place. You've man. been there? No. But it, no. it's not there anymore. But the thing is, is I, I saw a video where they actually show it. Oh, gorgeous. Really? Oh, yeah. You mean the hotel? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Everything it had. It had everything. Everything. And, and, and Hoover was invited there like 15 summers for free. Oh. It was, like the most, it was like the most exclusive hotel anywhere in the United States. And it was like $200 a night back then. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So it was f- beyond Hoover. It was frequented by many interesting figures. Including mafia men, <laughs> Santo Traficante, uh, Florida, who we'll hear about, mm-hmm. Carlos Marcello, Marcello, mm-hmm. Marcello, Marcello. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you're here to correct all my mm-hmm. Marcello, Marcello, Marcello. No, no, Marcello, Marcello. There you go. <laughs> okay, go ahead. When you say you can't say it like that, no one. Okay, go ahead. Carlos Marcello. <laughs> hey, Luigi. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and Osama Giancana. <laughs> Is that better? Yeah. Really yeah. Want a better yeah anytime there's an Italian thing, you gotta say it like that. Okay. Either that, or you gotta say it like a tough guy. Say a Giacana. What's up, Giacana? Okay, good. Awesome job. Uh, <laughs> so the hotel was also frequented by Lyndon Johnson, mm-hmm. John Connolly. Oh, wait a minute. Was he the governor of Dallas? He was not only the governor of Dallas when JFK was assassinated. He was also he also happened to be the person riding right in front of. JFK during the assassination. Uh, so he was in the same vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Nixon. Nixon? Yeah. Wow. And you already mentioned J. Edgar Hoover. Yes. So uh, what are what's something that kind of connects all these people? Oh, the, <laughs> the fact that they all factor heavily into many JFK assassination theories. Well, you know, and, I, and, 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 and boy, is that a coincidence, Steve? Is that a coincidence? Hmm. You know, it's funny. If and, and they probably frequented that hotel an awful lot. A lot, yeah. It's it's really hard for someone to believe who's thinking critically to say, well, you know, if you hang out with a bunch of people a lot, you don't know a lot about what they do. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let's let's kind of retrace this. What do you have? You have um, 
You have mafia figures. Yeah. You have you have government figures <laughs> Oil. from mostly from Texas. Mm -hmm. Johnson, Connolly, Nixon was originally from was he originally from Texas or originally from California? I don't believe he was from Texas. I think he was California. Okay. Um, and then J. Edgar Hoover, yep. who's FBI. So you know that's what we have there. So uh, and there and the other thing about Sid Richardson and Clint Murchison, who again are the the two these oil, two kind of oil, oil barons. Many assassination theories actually think that they were directly involved in the assassination. So well, there's there's a few that. very valid reasons why people would think that. Yeah. So we're not saying that that's the case. Nope. We're just saying that some nope. people think that. Yep. Um, regardless, they certainly are representative of big oil from Texas. Texan and big, big money. Oil. And big money. Well, yeah, it's the... Lots of big money. Um, another person, um, a little later in the 1930s, a man called Haroldson... L. Hunt. Oh, is that H. Hunt? H. L. Hunt. H. L. Hunt? Oh. Yeah. Okay. He was the first investor to take advantage of oil that was found in East Texas. Oh. Um, he bought 5,000 acres and soon owned 500 wells. He made a ton of money. By 1948, he was the richest man in Texas? No, America. The wow. The richest man in America by 1948. Imagine that. Um, well, and he improved upon that. By his by the time of his death in 1974, he was thought to be the richest man in the world. Wow. So, the richest man in the world was living in Texas. And the richest man in the world had to beg, and I think had to beg for two million bucks? Well, I don't think, actually, I don't think he was related to um, the other hunt. This is a different hunt. A different hunt? Yeah, this is a different hunt. So there's E. Howard Hunt. Ah! And then this is H.L. Hunt. Ah. I know at first I thought, oh, they're related. I thought like, oh, well, maybe um, E. Howard Hunt is his son. But no, I think actually they weren't related. Okay, okay, um, right. My bad, my let me bad. See. Let me see if it says something. Uh, but I don't think they were. Okay. Um, so this guy, H.L. Hunt, mm -hmm. was close friends with these other two guys, Sid Richardson mm. and Clint Murchison. Murchison? Murchison. Yeah, you said it right. Murchison. Yeah. So, um, H.L. Hunt, some facts about him. He was a staunch conservative, which isn't necessarily surprising, being that they're in Texas. Yeah. <coughs> um, and not necessarily, you know, whatever, maybe just a conservative. <coughs> but he kind of went beyond that. He was a member of the notorious John Birch Society in Dallas. Have you heard of this? No, I have not. See, so, so when I read um, some, of the books, some of the books I've read, that comes up a lot. This was kind of like a... It was a conservative society that really was just to the side of violent. Mm. Like, they were really kind of extreme. Okay. Um, kind of like Antifa? Yeah, <laughs> you you know, yeah, except on the other side. Um, you know, I don't think Antifa would be happy no. being associated with John no. Birch. And I don't think John Birch would be happy to be associated with Antifa. But one thing that's interesting is even though H.L. Hunt was a staunch conservative and a member of this super conservative society, and he was, you know, a Republican, obviously, yeah. despite that, he was instrumental to funding the political career of Lyndon Johnson. Well. Who was a Democrat, in case people are, well. are wondering. Well, that... that Okay. That's, so you think that's, like, you know, mm -hmm. and I know things were a little different back then. And obviously like Southern Democrats back in the, the 40s and 50s were much more liberal than they are. I'm sorry, were much more conservative than they are now. But that being said, for a guy who was essentially in the most conservative society in Dallas, who is, is like a lifelong Republican, to essentially be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to fund the beginning. And it's not like he was there once he became president. Like, he was with Lyndon Johnson from the get-go. Yeah, yeah. Um, be like, I'm going to essentially fund the career of this Democrat. Yeah. Doesn't that seem a little strange? No, not to me. You want to know why? Because I believe, and I'm sure a lot of folks out there believe too, that um, if you think you've got a winning team, it doesn't matter who is it, who it is. Hmm. Right? If, 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 um, and I think Democrats and Republicans are the same way. It doesn't really freaking matter to hmm. me. Because... Everybody wants to be something, and if they think someone, regardless of who they are, is going to help them get there, mm -hmm. it doesn't make a difference. Kind of like if a, say, a presidential candidate 
you know, doesn't say, you know, that uh, he is totally against, you know, Mr. Duke. And says that because he knows if he says he's against, he loses votes. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not going to say anything. Why? Because he'll lose the votes if he does. Doesn't mean that he supports them one way or the other, but he does want the votes and he'll do anything to get them, regardless of what other people think. Right? Do you think that's a problem for the politician to do that? I do. 150%. 150%. No, I but, agree. But, I but agree every single one does it. No, you're right. You're right. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, Nearly you know? all. I can name a couple on either side who don't. Well, you, you know, think, some that you I think agree maybe with. Kennedy didn't? No, I think Kennedy did. Of course He's he did. not one of them. Money will sway the opinion and the support of basically any politician out there. Yep. Nearly all of them. 99%. Yeah. There are a few that it doesn't. You know, and but well, the few that doesn't have nothing to do with it. Yeah. So they, it, they have a hard time getting power. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and the establishment knows that. So they mm-hmm. really don't care. Right? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Be nice. Mm-hmm. You know, you're the minority. So H.L. Hunt, something else about him. He was a strong opponent of Fidel Castro. <laughs> Not surprising. He helped fund the Cuban Revolutionary Council, a, a group that worked with both the Mafia, and the Central Intelligence Agency in an effort to remove Castro from power. Is this sounding uh, familiar? Wow. So, uh, I mean, obviously he had significant intelligence connections. Yeah. And, and influence. And inf- Oh, yeah. I mean, the richest... Huge. I mean, the person who's the richest person in America and then eventually in the world is going to have a lot of power. I mean, it just kind of goes with the territory. How many of you folks out there hate that? How many Wait, folks? Not, out, how many folks out there have been in in high school where where the rich kids were always the ones that got everything they wanted? How many times did you say, "I wish there was some way I could just make it so that they can be caught and 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 totally screwed for the shit they do"? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the good old USA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anywho, Madeline Duncan Brown was an advertising executive who um, claimed that she had an extended love affair with, and a son, actually, with Lyndon Johnson. Um, she said that she was present at a party at a party at the home of Clint Murchison, Sr. And we're, don't get, we're gonna get to this yep. much more on this later. Yep, yep, yep. Um, she claimed that she was at a, 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 a party at the Dallas home of Clint Murchison on the evening prior to the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which was attended by Lyndon Johnson and many other wealthy and powerful individuals, including Hunt, this is H.L. Hunt, um, Murchison, J. Edgar Hoover, Richard Nixon, you name others, wasn't George Bush supposed to be there as well? Uh, or maybe no, he wasn't there, was he? Uh, uh, yeah. Nixon was supposed to be there, did I already say Nixon? Yeah, Nixon. Yeah, Nixon, and there were like, there were like, 20, 20 or so people there. Yeah, I mean, these maybe were the biggest Big, Biggest ones, yeah. yeah, um, yeah so yeah. I guess Bush wasn't supposed to be no. at this one. Um, according to this lady, Madeline Duncan Brown, um, Lyndon Johnson had a meeting with several of the men, um, after with these men, after of which he told her, quote, after tomorrow, these goddamn Kennedys will never embarrass me again. That's no threat, that's a promise. Now, couple of things with that, right? Mm-hmm. She's still alive. She is. I didn't know that. No, she, I mean, she, she was still alive when, when she was interviewed. There's a lot of interviews online you can find with her. Yep, yep. She says the same thing in every single one of them. Yeah. Now you think, what would she, why would she want to lie? What is her motivation? Well, again, I mean, what it comes down to for me is if she is lying, which she may be. Yeah. Again, this is another one where I don't know that I believe sure. it necessarily. Yep. Because I think, why would they... I think, why would they do that? Uh, why would they meet there and kind of create that trail? But if she's lying, I would assume it's because she wanted her 15 minutes of fame. And she got it. Well, put it this way. She said she was there, but she wasn't in the meeting. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. She said that he showed up late. Mm-hmm. Right? Walked in. Walked back out and said this. Now, but the what? rest of the people there didn't know that, if that's the case. Right? It was a personal thing that he said, supposedly to her. So everybody else in that room didn't know. If everybody else in that room knew, I I don't think she'd be alive right now if that was the case. But why would Johnson tell her that? Because he was was stooping her. 
Huh? He was stupid her. Oh, that's why he was trying to impress her with his... Well, think about it. I mean, she said, even in the interview, I've watched it many times, uh-huh. and she said he's always had the worst temper in the world. Oh, uh, well, there's that. You know? And he was hung like a, like a mule. All right, but the bottom line is we don't have any video proof. Of oh, that. oh, yeah. but yeah, but she—it was gross. She said in the video, she said, "It still makes my toes curl thinking about it." <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, I mean, uh, so but she said, "I still love him, but I had to say the truth." This is what he said. I didn't understand what it meant. Blah 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 blah. I don't know if she came up with a book after that, folks. To be quite honest, I don't know. Was this after his death? This was after the after Kennedy was shot. Yeah. No, but I mean, was it after Johnson had died? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So maybe that then it would have been easier for her to come out with it because yeah. she's like she's not hurting him. No, no. And, but the maybe thing is, legacy, the thing but. is, though, think about it. I mean, I don't know how Madeline Brown died. Mm-hmm. All I know is if that's the case and this is true, mm-hmm. I mean. Would she still be alive if that's the case with what we know about how many people have died that have had less information? Well, maybe Because that's a bombshell. I mean, but maybe once she's come out with it, then why kill her then? Because if that's all... I mean, if she said okay. everything she knows, then yeah. it's kind of like, okay, well, that's the cat's out of the bag. There's no point to kill her now. So what we do now is what? If we, anything, killing her now makes it look right. like there's more. Right. Well, what do we there. do now if you're the government? Well, we may disprove her. We disgrace her. We try to yep, yep, make her less, right? right? Yep. Kind of like, you know, us tinfoil-wearing JFK conspiracy theorist people. Yeah, yeah. That's us. Yep. The gist of it is, the discovery of oil in Texas made a s- small group of men a great deal of money. And so what happens when a group of people make a great deal of money? Well, they, they band together and try to figure out how can they keep their <laughs> great deal of money. And this included strategies for keeping the price of oil as high as possible. So this involved a lot of political maneuvering. Um, They put kind of one of their own. um, They were able to place one of their own, a a man called Ross Sterling, who was another rich big oil man, um, into the position of governor of Texas in 1931. And he pushed through a bunch of laws and policies such as um, pro-rationing um, to keep the price of oil high. So essentially they... Kind of like what they do with diamonds. You realize that diamonds are like readily available in the world all over the place. They're not a precious metal. If you think that diamonds are a precious metal, mm-hmm. you are wrong. They're not a metal, right? They're still... Well, I mean, a precious stone. <laughs> okay. If that's the case, right, then the thing is, is that the people that are in charge of the diamond business... Mm-hmm hold them back so that they are more of a valuable asset. If you have more demand and less supply, the price goes up. Mm-hmm. So other political maneuvering that they did, when um, Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt became president, he attempted to push a bill through Congress that would have given his Secretary of the Interior, who at the time was a man called Harold Ix, the authority to regulate domestic oil production. This is something that's actually pretty standard in a lot of other countries. They kind of view oil production as so kind of central to the operation of the country that it's something that's regulated. Yeah, we can manipulate it any way we want to. Yeah. Well, they just want to kind of regulate. It's it's a natural resource, a country resource, so they're like, you know, we're going to make sure that we don't use it all up in the next 20 years. You know, we want to make sure we have it for the next, you know, however long. It's all going to be gone eventually anyway. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, But anyway... Um, Sam Rayburn, a a politician again from Texas, um, was chairman of the House Committee on Interstate and Foreign Commerce. He was able to kill the bill um, with the help of, you know, these powerful Texan friends. And um, another Texan, Tom Connolly, who I think actually is related to John Connolly, um, was able to sponsor and push through something called the Connolly Hot Oil Act. And this gave the Texas Railroad Commission the authority to, to pro-ration oil. So, I mean, this is all kind of wonky in a lot of detail, but the gist of it is essentially that they had crap loads of money. And so what they did was is they managed to put people in oil 
you know, people from big oil as governor of Texas, as senators, as, um, you know, House representatives. Ultimately, you know, Lyndon Johnson is president. They got people in these positions and they enabled or, or they used these people to push through policies that were favorable course, yeah. to big oil. I mean, nothing new, right? I mean, yeah. this is what we, uh, this is what we uh, get. Oilmen at the time, and this is true right up through when Kennedy was president, were getting a tax break that was really unprecedented in American business. While other businessmen had to pay taxes on their income regardless of what they sold, oilmen kind of got special treatment. Um, so what happened was, and this is a little complicated, but essentially, imagine an oil, an oil man drills a well that costs $100,000. And then let's say that he finds a reservoir that contains $10 million worth of oil, right? So he, he drills a well for $100,000. He gets a reservoir mm -hmm. that's worth $10 million. And then let's say the well produces $1 million of oil every year for the next 10 years. Wow. So essentially it produces, you know, the $10 million worth of oil, right? Yeah. In the first year, thanks to a depletion allowance, <laughs> which was essentially this tax break, yeah. this tax policy that was in place, the oil man could, to, could deduct 27.5% or $275,000 of that $1 million in income from his taxable income. So essentially, what we're talking about is it's, he's paying... 27.5% less in taxes than anybody else would in any other business for the same amount of profit. And when we talk about businesses, I mean, you think, you know, like in business, if, if a company is, is making a 6 or 7% return, they're doing pretty well, right? Yeah. And so think about the impact of essentially a 27.5% tax write-off that no other corporation gets. And we're talking about this being applied to corporations that are have been that were wildly profitable to begin with. So not cool. It was a huge it was essentially a handout to these yeah, rich It them. was a handout to super rich people. By the end of the tenth year in this scenario, the oil man would have deducted two point seven five million dollars from his taxable income, even though his initial investment was only a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I mean, think about that. I mean, I know, I know that's you, a good deal. You might have to kind of go back and listen to that again. It's kind of complicated, Jesus but Christ, I mean, the gist of it is is that they were getting a crazy good deal and yeah. an unfair good deal, an unfair deal for everybody else. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, uh, what are you going to say? I mean, you know, it, 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 it's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? You know, it's just the rich getting richer. Yeah. yeah. The system in the tax law and, and the depletion allowance was so unfair and it so obviously benefited only this small group of oilmen in Texas that it seemed obvious that it was only a matter of time before Congress would remove this loophole. And it, it only lasted, like it lasted as long as it did really because of the fact that the Texas oil had you know, so much power in the government. Somebody did come along eventually. <laughs> yep. Who took umbrage to this tax, tax allowance? Ooh. Well, I mean, there were other politicians who were upset about it, but yeah. they weren't really in. Um, they didn't have the the power to do, you know, to really do that much about it. Yeah. Um, but and actually, let me give some shout outs to um, some of these people, or at least one of these people. In um, 1954, Paul Douglas, a senator from Illinois began making speeches in the Senate about the need for tax reform in order to eliminate the special privileges, well. um, such as the oil depletion allowance. Mm -mm. And, uh, and so he, he was trying to kind of influence the Finance Committee and, and kind of get something started on this. And at the time, in 1954, he actually held um, senior priority on the Finance Committee. <laughs> and he should have been given or, I'm sorry, he wasn't on the committee, but he but he had priority to be, to get onto the committee. Okay. So well, he was sure. about to get one of these seats. 
on the committee, but he didn't get them. And why is that? Well, the reason is, is because Lyndon Johnson applied considerable pressure on Harry Byrd, who was the chairman of that committee, oh. to stop Paul Douglas from getting on the committee. Well, when, you, when you have that influence. Yep. Yipper. In 1955, Lyndon Johnson became the majority leader in the Senate, and really that now, like he really, that kind of gave a lot of power to the oil industry, because he really was, you know. He was a shark anyway. He, he was a, you know, his, his politicking was unmatched. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. he, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. So according to John Connolly, remember him, mm -hmm. you know, the governor of, of governor Texas? Of this, yeah. According to him, and he's actually somebody who's, you know, relatively friendly to Johnson. Yeah. Um, according to him, large sums of money were given to Johnson throughout the 1950s from the oil industry. <laughs> so Connolly said, I handled inordinate amounts of cash. Some of it was being funneled through him. A great deal of this came from oil men. I mean, Johnson got money from other places as well. Um, and uh, one guy, here's another bit of testimony, Cornell Wilde, he was a man who worked for the Gulf Oil Corporation. In 1959, he took over from David Searles as the chief paymaster to oh, Johnson. Wow, look at there. And he testified Jeez. that he made regular payments, as in recurring payments, of $10,000 to Johnson. And when we say payments, we don't mean payments to like Johnson's election fund. Mm -hmm. We mean ten thousand dollar, like bags of cash, that are going to Johnson for his personal use. Now, let me ask you a question, folks. If you were getting that kind of money, <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, I, I get it, right? We can sit here and we can say, "Oh, that's horrible," but. It's a lot of money back then. Think yeah, about how you You're right. It's like it's like four hundred thousand dollars or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I don't know about you, but I wonder how people would act if they weren't where they are now and they were used to getting ten thousand dollars a whatever. It'd be hard to turn down. I mean, I think I I would like to think I would turn down that type of a bribe, but. It's hard. I mean, think about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially. I mean, think of somebody who says like, "Here's a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Do with it what you will. Just kind of make sure that this law stays the way it is." Yeah. I mean, that's tempting. That's very it? tempting. And the other thing is, especially, you know, if if if, but still, I mean, if you're making no money, okay. Uh huh. Yeah. He right? was. He was already rich. How much is enough? How much? Really? How much is enough? I mean, was it all about the money, or was it the fact that maybe he thought he'd get mm -hmm. something out of them if he did? It was like you know. Kind of, you know, uh, you rub mine, I'll rub yours down the line, mm -hmm. right? You know, oh, you give me the money, I'll help you out. But then when I need something, I'll ask you to, mm -hmm. you know. So it's, it's all, it's a big game of crap. Yeah. It sucks. In 1959, there was an attempt to end all federal price control over natural gas. Okay. So this was something that the oil companies wanted because... They're essentially saying, like, we want to set all the prices ourselves. There was some, oh. there was some federal federal control, not much, but there was some federal, federal control to kind of regulate what was happening from a pricing perspective. The oil industry didn't want it because they wanted to gouge people to their heart's did. content. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so there was this bill in 1956 to try to end that. Paul Douglas, the guy we talked about earlier, right. led the fight against the bill. Um, and actually, he had some friends as well. He was also helped by um, a man called Fran Francis Case of South Dakota. Um, and actually, this is interesting, Francis Case had been a supporter of the bill, but somebody then offered him a $25,000 bribe, hmm. and he was a person who was supporting <coughs> the bill, who then was bribed to support the bill, and then he said, you know what? You shouldn't be bribing me because that's not ethical. So now I'm going to come out and and tell everybody that I was bribed to support the bill, and I'm going to come out against it. Oops. So they tried to bribe the wrong guy. Ooh, is any state alive? Um, as far as I know, I don't. I mean, I don't have any. Uh, I have that's any, always going to be a question. Yeah, look that up. Look up to see what happened to Francis Case. You know that freaking sucks. Okay. But uh, wow. Um, so he stated that as a man of principle, he thought that he should announce the fact that 
the oil industry had attempted to bribe him to the Senate, and he did. Good man. So, uh, but that being said, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, was able to push the bill through, and he got it passed, um, 53 votes to 38. Jeez. However, three days later, Dwight Eisenhower vetoed the bill Ooh. on grounds of immoral lobbying. Wow. And Eisenhower wrote in his diary that, quote, in terms of this bill, he said it had been, quote, the most fragrant kind of lobbying that has been brought to my attention, that there was a great stench around the passing of this bill, <laughs> and that the people involved were, quote, so arrogant and so much in defiance of accepted standards of propriety as to risk creating doubt among the American people concerning the integrity of government processes. So this is what he's saying about the oil the, the oil lobby, wow. essentially. Unbelievable. In 1956. 56, folks. 5-6. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it probably seems like, okay, this is, we're talking about the JFK assassination. Why are we going so deep yeah, into what's happening with big oil? Yeah, you got to have that information. To but, I mean, this is, I mean, it's, this is, just trust us. This is leading yeah, somewhere. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, um, yep, yep, yep. So, the Washington Post, pretty big. Big. Big um, newspaper, right? Drew Pearson of the Washington Post reported, this is around the same time period, that large sums of money had been flowing from Brown and Root, which is a big gas pipeline company, to Lyndon Johnson. So even in the 50s, this wasn't kind of hidden. Of course not. So by this time, Johnson was kind of in serious trouble, and, and so he actually sought a private meeting with this journalist, this Drew Pearson of the Washington Post. Oh, 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 oh. And so he offered the journalist a deal. He said that if Pearson dropped the investigation, oh, Jesus. he would support this guy called Estes Kefauver in some upcoming primary. And the reporter, for some reason, accepted the deal. And the reporter said, quote, I figured I might do that much for... Estes Kefauver. This is the first time I've ever made a deal like this, and I feel unhappy about it. With the presidency of the United States at stake, maybe it's justified, maybe not. I don't know. So, I don't know. I mean, this reporter essentially uncovered the money flowing to Johnson, and then he took he took kind of a deal with Johnson. I don't make of it what you will. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you, you know, how long can you be you know, true to your moralistic values before something comes along and makes you change your mind. <laughs> so uh, Dwight Eisenhower, when he vetoed the bill, it pissed off the oil industry, as you're, uh -huh. you know, kind of is not surprising. Sid Richardson and Clint Murkison, remember that? Yes! They actually negotiated directly with Eisenhower regarding <laughs> the deal. <laughs> and Eisenhower didn't back down, but he did agree to appoint their man, their kind of chosen man, Robert Anderson, as his Secretary of the Treasury. This guy, by him moving into the Treasury of the, the Secretary of the Treasury, he, he was able to kind of roll back some of the reforms. Okay. So Eisenhower kind of, I mean, my impression of Eisenhower, not to go too far off on this, is that he was a well-meaning guy who maybe wasn't super tuned in. Is that probably a good yeah. assessment? I mean, I think so. I, you know, I what a, what a great person to be a president. I mean, right? Mm -hmm. Four-star general, right? Yeah, yeah. War hero, leader. You know, the, the quintessential, in my opinion, you know, person that if you're thinking about somebody to become president, there's your guy. But, but maybe not. Maybe not invested enough. No, I don't think so. And I think he was duped. I think near the end of his presidency, you know, just look up on YouTube his last speech. Mm -hmm. he, he, he believed what he was doing was right uh -huh. the whole time he was doing it. Yeah. But then he found out about what was really going on mm -hmm. and then without saying it, actually saying it, yeah. I think it was, it was a genius thing to do. His very last, was the, most, the most amazing you know, speech, talking about the military industry, industrial complex. Yeah. All of it, it's like, yeah guys, sorry. I just found this out not too long ago. 
And I'm not president anymore. I can't do anything about it. <laughs> so, there you go. And who picked up the baton? But he certainly didn't care enough no. to kind of put himself in danger. No, no, you're right. And But he left it up to the guy who took over. <laughs> but it's worth, if you get a chance, go online yeah. and Google... Um, Dwight Eisenhower, oh. Military Industrial Complex what speech. What a great speech it was, too. It's definitely worth listening to. You can to, tell. I mean, and the thing is, though, too, folks, remember, it's like, you know, you can tell when, you can really tell intuitively if you're open when someone's bullshitting you, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Look at that speech and look into Dwight D. Eisenhower's eyes and you tell me whether what he's saying he doesn't believe or know something about. Mm-hmm. Look at him. Look at him. The man looks defeated in that speech. Like, yeah, which is interesting because he, he, he left the presidency an extremely popular president. Yeah. You know, if he had been able to run again, he would have won. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. a lot of people thought that Nixon was a shoe-in because he had been Eisenhower's vice presidency. So by all accounts, you would think he had had an extremely successful yeah. presidency. Sure. But you're right in terms of the way he looks. There. I mean, did you get that appear? Did you get that thought when you when you watched that? I mean, that by the military industrial complex. Just I, I look at his eyes. I look, and I tr- and I, I I I just I get this feeling. And even before I, well, it's just really such a shocking it. speech. It's like that somebody would have been president all that time. Yeah. And then come and out. And a military with, general. Yeah, and then come <laughs> out. Yeah, and a mil- Yeah, had been a military general, and then president all that time. And then, like, in his last speech, yeah. as he's leaving the presidency, yes. to essentially drop this bombshell yeah. that we need to be aware of the military-industrial complex, it, it does, it, it's just shocking. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that he just decided. I, I think it was something he probably figured out or knew or learned mm-hmm. really late and, and said, oh, shit, what do you do now? I mean, I, I, I feel for the guy. I really do because it's like, I don't know, maybe I'm not an empath. Or anything like that, but I will tell you that something about that speech when I was watching it, mm-hmm. I just got this feeling of like, ah, I wish I could have, or what if? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's sad. Watch it, and you'll you'll understand. To kind of start to wrap up the the important aspects of this discussion on oil, so we're entering 1960 now, when Kennedy becomes president. Mm. So what you have is you have an extremely extremely powerful oil industry. You have um, the oil industry has has representatives at all levels of government, yep. and they have under Eisenhower, the Secretary of the Treasury, they've managed to roll back the few reforms that had kind of been put in place in the late fifties. Yep. So essentially, they were there with all of the cards, and even during the sixty presidential election. Kennedy himself gave his support initially for the oil depletion allowance. Um, in October of 1960, he said that he appreciated, quote, the value and importance of the oil depletion allowance. Quote, I realize its purpose and value. The oil depletion allowance has served us well. However, <laughs> here we go. Good old Kennedy. Over the course of his presidency, he kind of had a, I don't know, maybe he didn't believe it to begin with, but he he had kind of a change of heart. Coming to Jesus. Which happened again. It happens to him on, on issue after issue after issue as he kind of, over the course of his presidency, as he learns more about it, he kind of changes his mind. And by late 1962, he had decided to take on the oil industry. And in on the 16th of October, 1962, Kennedy was able to persuade Congress to pass an act that removed the distinction between repatriated profits and profits reinvested abroad. So while this law was applied to kind of all industries, it, it especially impacted the oil companies. It didn't, yeah. it didn't serve to completely roll back the depletion allowance, but it did kind of cause oilmen to have their taxes go up um, on and right now we're only talking about foreign investments, yeah. um, but their their earnings on foreign in, uh, foreign investments dropped from thirty percent to fifteen percent, mm. and so that was his first kind of salvo. Is that mm-hmm. is that the right word? Um, his first kind of volley at the oil industry, and then at the beginning of nineteen sixty three, Kennedy um, proposed or, or presented his proposals for tax reform. 
and this in it, it involved a lot of different things but it also included the removal of the oil depletion allowance <laughs> so this is what he's proposing at the beginning of 1963 and mm. and this was something that people really felt was going to he was going to have the influence to be able to push this through sure. and it was estimated that it would have resulted in a loss of around 300 million dollars a year to Texas oilmen and let's I want to be clear about what that means. That doesn't mean that they would that these Texan oilmen would lose three million dollars a year now, in terms of like they would have those lo- their businesses would have those losses. What it means is is like instead of them making three billion dollars a year, they're going to make two point seven billion, or I don't know what they're making. Instead of making a billion dollars a year, they're going to make seven hundred million. So, so anyway, he wanted to do away with this extremely unfair depletion allowance. So. Then Kennedy was killed, <laughs> and what happens? President Lyndon Johnson immediately dropped the government plans to remove the oil depletion allowance. Yes, he did. Richard Nixon followed his example, so that the, the depletion allowance remained. It was not until the arrival of Jimmy Carter in 1976 that the oil depletion allowance was finally removed. We're gonna learn down the line that you know Lyndon B. Johnson, he knew, as the vice president of the United States, he knew that that, that Kennedy was going to be coming through Dallas. He 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 planned everything. Mm-hmm. It, it's not like he didn't know. And and just start to remember all the connections he had mm-hmm. to oil, oil to the FBI, the governor, yeah, <laughs> all of these people to Texas. Yeah, I mean think about that. He, I mean, not to jump ahead in terms of pointing the finger at Lyndon Johnson, but um, he had extremely tight connections with J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. He had extremely tight connections with oil. Yep. You know, with Texan oil. Yep. He had extremely tight connections with well, with Texas, where this all went down. I think no, I shouldn't I th- say tight connections. He he was f- yeah from Texas, and he knew. You know, he had connections in Dallas, and he knew, and he was he he was like this with the people that were huge in running Texas, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. Well, you yeah, know? him and John Connolly. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was another guy too. I forget who it was. Uh, he they called him the uh, the the owner of Texas. I forget the guy's name. But all these probably big, Clint Murkison, right? Was probably yeah, the owner probably of Texas. so. And the thing is, is all these important, influential people in Texas. Mm-hmm. If tell me. He was their guy. Right. If you're going to put together a coup d'etat, mm-hmm. you want to have everybody in your pocket that you can. Yep. You know, it's it's it's. I don't think it's a coincidence that Texas was picked as no. part of the spot where the, where he would be. I don't. I don't. I mean, think based it's a off of what we all. just talked about. No, I mean, yeah, you've got so many people hating all of these things we've talked about already, right? Mm-hmm. Think for yourself. If you watch these prior videos, then you know. Right, so many people had a reason, albeit the wrong reason. Yeah, you know, to hate Kennedy. I mean, we've gone through it. I mean, we're far enough that we are already. Yeah, we can talk about why the CIA hated Kennedy. Sure, we can talk about why anti-Castro Cubans. Yeah, anti-Castro Cubans hated Kennedy. While the why the F have we talked about the mafia yet? Maybe we haven't. But not the, the mafia. But okay, we'll, we'll get, get into that. We'll explain why the FBI hated Kennedy. Why Lyndon Johnson, we haven't gotten into all the stuff about him, why he hated Kennedy, That's huge. while the oilmen hated Kennedy. I mean, Kennedy was not, he made enemies. He made a lot of enemies. And how sad is By it? doing the right thing, unfortunately. Yeah, and and, well, and that's the thing. He wasn't the most perfect person. As you know from our very first video, yeah. Kennedy was not the perfect person. Certainly not. But the thing is, guess what? You're not a perfect person. We're not perfect people. The bottom line is that the, the, the proof is in the pudding, Right. You can't not have faults and be a human being. Well, you know what? If you go to if you go to Washington D.C. in a position of power, and you do the right thing, yeah, you're gonna piss off a lot of people. Yeah, Henry Fonda was in a movie way back in the day. Forget the name of the movie. Um, somebody goes to Washington. That was that was um, not, that wasn't Henry Fonda. That was um, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, yeah. It was him. Mm-hmm. But great movie. Why? And look how long ago it was made! It's like so ridiculous. It's like how this thing is like it's foreshadowing. Like 30s, yeah. Right? I mean, this guy is a is a is a gung-ho, you know, new government person. Woo! I'm gonna go in and do the right thing until, well, you know. Mm-hmm. He starts learning 
Well, that's not the right way. Not the way that it works. And, and it's sad, folks. It's sad because in, and in reality that I have, I live every day mm-hmm. knowing this. And how much of a shitty, like, you know, if, if we didn't do this, I don't know what I would do. You know, it's like, it's like we, we, we have this, like, okay, we, we have this need to be able to spread this information because how hard is it? It's, it's hard. It's like, how do you live through your life every day when you know that this is the kind of thing that's going on, mm-hmm. right? Well, you do because the important thing is, is that you try, to, you try to stay in the place where you know you have at least a, 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 this much freedom to, of speech and, and the ability with the Internet to be able to spread this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? Any other country, we probably would never be able to do that. Of course, you know, who knows, whatever. But, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's horrible. And it's yeah. true. Oil, you're right. That's where it all starts. For me, that's where it all started. You know, and... Well, it all starts with money. You know, yeah. It's, and, mean, greed, it, and greed. If it wasn't oil, it would be something else. It's all... A, for me, like, for everything, I always say, you know, follow the money. No, hey! And so in this case, oil was where the money was. Yeah. Well, and it's true in so many other ways, right? You try to, you try to talk to any detective. You talk to any, yep. you know, any person. What's the first thing you do when you try to find out who was responsible for a crime? Who benefited? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Follow the money. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and, and you'll find once we get into these other videos that they, you go back here and go, wow. You're right, dude, because it's true. Where's the money? Show me the money, right? Yeah. And it's all about money, folks. You know, money means nothing. Money is paper. Money is paper. You know, what did we do before we had money, right? Mm-hmm. And what are you going to do, my friend, if something happens and, a, and an electronic magnetic pulse just turns your TV, your lights, and, and your phone off? What are you going to do then? Are you actually going to look up then? Are you actually going to look up and take the blinders off and start looking around? Because I guarantee you, my friend, the day that that happens, if it does, and you're not prepared, and you don't know what the hell you're doing, just put your head between between your legs and, and ask to be killed the next day. Because you won't survive three days. You won't. You just won't. There's nothing to it. If you're not prepared, say anything you want about preppers and all this other stuff, but if you're not prepared, you're just, you're just cattle. You're cattle. So... You know, it's it's all about the money, and, and until you learn that the money isn't the most important thing in the world, mm-hmm. you lost. You know, you lost. So, my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, and as the beers wind down, beers wind down. We're gonna gonna drink them. All right, that's the perfect end to a perfect podcast. Uh, no, that's the perfect end to a perfect podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! See you next time.